the need for us to level that playing field between our patients and ourselves. You say you want patients to be motivated, but if you keep stripping their power, putting them in a blue gown, putting them on a table and in an ice cold room, you can't empower people if you keep stripping them of their power. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Slice, a podcast about the people behind innovation in healthcare. I'm your host, Justin Barad, co-founder and CEO of OsoVR, orthopedic surgeon, and pizza enthusiast. Each week, we hear the thrilling stories of innovators driving change and improving health around the world. Let's get started. I am super excited to have a longtime friend and inspiration, incredible innovator, Dr. Ami Bhatt on the show. Dr. Bhatt graduated from Harvard, and then she obtained her MD from Yale School of Medicine, and then uh, did, I think, a fair bit of training at uh, Brigham and Women's for internal medicine, pediatrics, cardiology, and then also trained at Boston's Children's Hospital on MGH. And I'm sure I'm like butchering all of this because this no, is like- No, no. Really I feel bad for people to have to go through the long list of where they've been. <laughs> uh, with a particular focus, I think we can agree on yes. adult congenital yes. heart disease, right? Okay. So we can agree on that there. But in addition to all of you know these incredible credentials, Dr. Ba is also a pioneer in telemedicine and digital health more broadly. She founded her first virtual care program in 2013 and recently served as director of outpatient telecardiology at Mass General or MGH. And very excited to share, if people are not already aware, as of January this year, 2022, Dr. Bud is the new chief innovation officer of the American College of Cardiology while still serving as director of the MGH Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program. So, wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Is it? I don't think it's kosher to go woohoo when somebody says you're a chief innovation officer now. But uh, for those of us who uh, have been in this field for so long, the fact that such a position exists, first of all, like such a wonderful thing, right? That that it's recognized as innovation is a field, and it needs focus, and it needs attention, um, and it needs people to train in it, understand how to do it and talk to each other. And so I love that the concept even exists, makes me want to cheer every time I hear it about myself or someone else. Well, I feel like woohoo is an understatement. <laughs> and um, I'd love to get to the point of like how this came into being. And honestly, like the challenges you're describing of like, you know, why didn't this exist before? And how did you help make it happen? But let's start at the beginning, because why medicine in the first place? Like what got you interested in clinical care and taking care of patients? You know, when I first had a chance to kind of choose uh, after Yale Medical School what I wanted to do, I chose medicine and pediatrics, which is why you had to read that long list of places I've been, because I, I always had this kind of Norman Rockwell idea of what it meant to be a physician, right? To be able to take care of anyone who walks in the door and you are that consummate caregiver who is there by the patient's side doing what needs to be done. Um, I had this impression that, therefore, you know, that's what I wanted was med peds, uh, maybe global, maybe adult congenital heart disease. And then when I graduated from residency in medicine and pediatrics, what they have you do is they have you read your application letter, your personal statement. I mean, it's a horrible thing, right? You're reading what four years ago you wrote, like the reason I want to be here. 
And as I was reading it out loud, it said that I wanted to do adult congenital heart disease. And I thought, gee, but I thought I developed that idea along the way. Hmm. And it turns out that there was this one day in med school that really convinced me of what I want to do now that I think back. The way I have it imagined is really kind of a beautiful screenplay. I don't know that it happened this way, but the pediatric division, pediatric cardiology at Yale was called urgently to the adult cardiology floor at Yale. And adult cardiologists in general don't call pediatric cardiologists for help. That wasn't a thing back then, right? So there we are in a kind of perfect flock of team walking in with the white coats flapping in the breeze, arriving on the adult floor to take care of an adult with congenital heart disease as pediatric cardiologists, because the adult cardiologists hadn't really seen this before. This was a new field. It was a blossoming field of people who had grown past age 18 and now needed care. And so I tell you this story partly because this is, you know, how I ended up where I am, because the concept that nobody had a clear path or road for how are we going to care for adults with congenital heart disease? There were very few of us who were interested in this field, who were able to do this work, who had that passion for it. And then the subsequent 10, 15 years that we spent building this field, going from, hey, there's a patient who needs somebody who has pediatric experience but adult cardiology background, can we find a couple of us, to now we actually have board exams for this. Now we have certification for programs. Now we do education for the general fellows so they know. Now we have more adults than we do kids with congenital heart disease in this country. And to build from, gee, this is something that really needs to happen to, hey, we have a system, I think has been a really great experience. And and I loved doing it. One of the reasons I love it all the more now as I turn towards innovation is I think innovation's at that same point. We're at that inflection point where we're seeing, hey, we're going to need to understand how to innovate the delivery of healthcare, healthcare transformation, education and healthcare. All of that needs to change. It's a digital transformation that's happening, but we're just at the beginning, but enough people see it that there's a road ahead where we're going to develop that roadmap. And people like you and I and others, we get the opportunity to do it together. And so long story short, That's where I ended up in medicine and how I got to adult congenital heart disease. But that's also just what I love to do is building those new things where you're not sure what the road looks like, but you're pretty sure someone needs to build it and you'd like to be part of that. Wow. Yeah, your passion clearly shines through. And just for the record, I don't think there's any amount of money someone could pay me to read my personal (laughs) statement from med school. It's a little terrifying. It's pretty wild that, you know, sounds like from day zero, you were already very innovative. And it's also interesting just, you know, I often talk about In medicine, sometimes we can be the victims of our own success. And it sounds like the field of adult congenital heart disease is because we've been so successful Mm -hmm. with pediatric Mm -hmm. congenital heart disease, right? And now we have this kind of new category patient that in a way, sadly, did not really exist before. But I really want to dive just one click deeper and, and understand kind of your path to get to this point, which is incredible. And even when you're at Harvard or before Harvard, did you know you wanted to be a doctor? Like why medicine in the first place? It is such a good question. It feels like so long ago. I mean, last week feels like so long ago. I know, that's right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you want to say things like, I really enjoyed science. And I loved helping people, right? And and those and then you say those things and you go, oh God, did I just say that out loud, (laughs) right? Like, how did that happen? And I sometimes wonder if this notion of who goes into medicine and why we go into medicine. And I'll tell you that my friends and colleagues from med school or pre-med or residency, or as we chose subspecialties, we're all different and we're all unique. For me, I really love 
getting to know things about people. So I'll give you an example that's not directly related to medicine, but if we go to a conference or let's say you go to a family wedding and people chit chat with each other, I'm not a big person for chit chat. I'd rather get to know you. And within 15 minutes, people in my family tease me because I know exactly what that person's hopes and dreams might be, what's challenging in their job, how they're doing with their family. And I've just met them 15 minutes ago, but that's how I connect with people. And if you ask me now, I'll say, I think what eventually drew me to medicine was that what profession allows you to meet someone and within 30 minutes, within a few weeks, a few months, whatever it might be, you are such an integral part of understanding what their life story is and what they're going through right now, right? You have this emotional connection. You have this opportunity to make things better for them and sometimes to make them better, you know, at the end of life, sometimes to make them better by doing a procedure, sometimes to just be there to listen. But when do you get that kind of intense relationship with another human? And I think I love that in every aspect of my life. And so in retrospect, I think that's what made me just go towards and then stick with medicine is the relationship between the doctor and the patient. It's also part of what was really challenging when I started doing virtual visits, which we'll get to later, but I'll just mention it now in that putting distance in a screen between me and a patient, boy, was I hesitant, especially if it holds true that I went into medicine because I love the relationships. Well, either way, I've never heard an answer quite like that. And that's beautiful. And I'm just waiting for you to ask about my relationship with my mother now. I'm like bracing myself, which is great. She's my inspiration. You've said that many times before, by the way. So kudos to mom. (laughs) It's true. Mom, if you're listening, I love you. So Definitely that, I mean, that's an incredible answer to sort of, you know, why medicine, why a doctor. And clearly in med school, in residency, you're already having that innovative mindset of wanting to do things that other people haven't thought of or haven't done before or didn't even exist. Um, like you're a trailblazer. Have you always been that way? Like growing up, like were you always trying new things or really creative or where did that aspect of your sort of career and personality come from? That comes from my mother, actually. There are always choices that you could make as to what you want to do. And I think she was the one who taught me, like, you have to look at what you have a passion for, and then you have to stick with it. And it's going to be hard sometimes, and you might be the only one who wants to do it. Or you might stick with something you're not really great at, but you're still passionate about it. And, And that takes some serious curbing of the ego to do that. And so in all those ways, she's really the one who taught me about passion. I'll give credit to my dad as well. We bought t-shirts recently, actually. I can't remember if it was Nike, Under Armour. I'm not sure which company put out t-shirts that just have one word on them and they say focus. And that is my father. If you ask anybody in my family, extended family, they'll say focus. And I think it's that combination of what my mother taught me, which is just, if you have passion, you have to follow that. And sometimes you're going to be passionate about something, you'll be great. And sometimes you're going to be passionate about it. You're not going to be so great, but if you're really passionate, stick with it, figure it out do it because you love it. And then my dad, who just said, you know, you can have passion about a hundred things, but at some point you need to focus to really get something to the next level. And I think it's probably that combination of what I was raised to think about that ended up making me who I am. Wow. What an amazing combination. And I think I completely agree. I want to encourage innovation in others and to try new things. But at the same time, if the passion to do it is not there, And similarly, the focus on, because if you're trying to do a hundred different things, like nothing's that, you know, you see this with people like a thousand ideas and nothing ever Mm -hmm. happens, right? Like you have to have those two elements, but definitely if the passion is not there and like, you know, people are just trying to do things for different reasons, it's just, it's, this is not worth. (laughs) No, no. 
And I have to say, I wish I could tell you that like, that's how I always function. But there have been a number of times, probably for me, you, others, where you do something because you think you're supposed to do it and you're not passionate about it, but you do it, right? But I mean, that is the way of the physician, right? That's how we're taught to do things. Yep, I'm supposed to do it this way and therefore I will, right? Or I need to do that, therefore I will. But I think the other side is even more challenging, which is taking on more. And that's a fine line between being innovative and taking on more because the same people who love new things love lots of new things. And I think this is why the word focus was kind of beat into me and it still needs to be taught to me. The temptation to just do more and more things because everything looks awesome mm-hmm. is both really great. And lately, I'd say, especially with regard to physician burnout, right, and kind of the lack of clinician wellness, even before COVID, we had this issue, is oftentimes also because many of us do try to take on additional things, sometimes because we're not satisfied with how one thing is working. So we take on more things that we think might work better. And now you're stuck with a thing that's not working and then a bunch of things that may or may not work better. And now you're overstretched and then you're more burned out. So I think there's a real risk in overcommitting. And so focus, I think, may also be a little bit protective. Yeah, this is a huge problem I see with with physicians where I think we are used to just whatever comes in the door, like you have to say yes. And so we, we never learn how to say no. And even when it's coming from a good place, like, oh, I want to help out with this thing or I want to do this. Like, this is something I want to do. It's not being assigned to me, but still like, you know, that spreading yourself too thin. And there was a book that Peter Waters at Boston Children's gave to all of us as fellows called Essentialism. It was an okay book, but I really liked the message of just like, you know, saying no can be like the most powerful tool to making you much more successful and productive because it's like you say, you just focus your efforts. Yeah, it sounds like the Marie Kondo of brain space. So. <laughs> 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 yes. You were crushing this, by the way. You should be the host. You do have a few podcasts, right? We do. We have a little live show that we do. It used to be weekly. And, and then I realized that that was a little lack of focus, a little exhausting. So we do a little less frequently. No, but this is great. I'm so excited you're doing this. Well, way to walk the walk. So in addition to innovating in like an entirely new specialty, you know, you're very innovative in technology and especially in telemedicine. So how did that start to come about? And yeah, touch on some of the issues you were mentioning of some of your hesitancy to do the very thing that you were actually trailblazing in a way. You know, there's that phrase, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And I feel like my phrase is a little different. It's desperation is the mother of innovation, right? So let me back into why I say that. Around 2012, 13, as I was taking on and growing the adult congenital heart disease program at Mass General, our patients came from a several hundred mile radius throughout the Northeast and um, upstate New York. And they were young and they had jobs and they had families and lives. And sometimes all we did in the office was talk, right? Let's be honest. Maybe they got an imaging study, but then we would talk. And so a lot of them would cancel and then maybe not come and not remember to reschedule. Or they had memories of going to the doctor as a kid and like, who wants to continue that memory, right? Your mom dragged you for years. Or they were afraid the other shoe would drop because we said, hey, you have a disease that may come back and have something else happen. You need to stay in care. And you would think that the logical side of your brain says, I need to stay in care. But then there's emotional side of your brain that says, I can't know that right now. I don't want to go to her. I don't want to find out if there's something else right now. Life is too busy. I don't want to know. 
And so people actually stopped coming back. And that's true for me and actually across the globe. There are papers, if you look back in the like 2009 to 2012 range, tons of papers on adult congenital heart disease patients not returning to care. So desperation is somewhat the mother of adoption or innovation. And that was when telemedicine had begun for the stroke service at Mass General. They were really trying to have experienced neurologists help local community hospitals who had acute stroke patients and deciding who was going to be treated and how. They did a beautiful job with that. And that was when they said, gee, does anybody else at MGH kind of have an interest? And that was when my hand shot up because I'm willing to try new things. And I was desperate for my patients to come back. And I said, let me try this. And boy, my patients loved it. They didn't have to come from Maine to Boston, right? They could sit in their house in Maine I could sit in Boston. We could have the conversations we needed to have. And it was really great. But it also made me realize, gee, I don't have a stethoscope at their house. I don't have a handheld ultrasound. I don't have a Bluetooth blood pressure cuff. They don't have a connected weight scale. That all didn't come to me in the first day. But that was over the period of years following as I was seeing them on a screen. I realized that there are probably a lot of things I can do in their home to help take care of them. And then we started doing it to clinics. So you know, now it seems very commonplace that we Zoom all the time, but remember, we didn't before two years ago. This is not that common in medicine. And so we would use the virtual visit platform into clinics in rural northeastern United States and uh, even all the way down to Florida. And I would kind of beam into them on a little iPad and uh, help them think about who's the patient in front of them because they didn't train for 35 years, right? So it was helpful to have me there. And so that's kind of how we started. And it was really both my interest in saying this is something cool, but it was also I have a young population and I need a solution because they don't want to come here. So how do I go to them? Mm -hmm. And then it was some luck. It was some luck that that program started at the same time that I needed something. In those early days, telemedicine is much more mainstream now. I just had a telemedicine clinic this morning. Went great. But in those early days, other than not having access to some of that kind of key data or being able to do those point of care type diagnostics or studies, like what were some other challenges you were having just from like a technology or kind of user experience standpoint? Oh, yeah. Video didn't work. Audio didn't work. People couldn't log in. People were frustrated. They were calling my administrative assistant. She and I have been together since the beginning of time, but she's about 15 years older than me and very good at tech now. But both of us were technically challenged when we started. And and she was their tech support, right? So you can imagine with this, we could have been a sitcom. So lots of those technological challenges because there was no actual workflow or infrastructure. This was us flying by the seat of our pants. But there was not actually the well-established, tested infrastructure, making sure everything worked. There was no tech support on either their side or our side to help us out. You know, my patients, God bless, are the only reason that I really stayed in this field or got further into this field because they were willing to trial with me. They understood this wasn't going to be perfect. It might not work sometimes, but they were willing to stick it out. And some of them still say, well, Dr. Bot always had something new that we were trying. And I say, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. We really did. So grateful for that doctor-patient relationship. But everything went wrong. You know, all sorts of technical things went wrong. And then there was perception, right? And I can't tell you what other people thought of me because I don't know. You can guess only, but you can say what you think of yourself. And I was worried that people would think that I didn't want to be side by side with my patient. Really? That I would be judged for not bringing the patient in and sitting with them and holding their hand and for putting this distance between us. And I thought that for a while until 
a couple patients in a row came to me with different reasons they wanted the televisit. So one, I insisted come in because they needed surgery. So something you can relate to. And I, you can't tell somebody they need surgery over a video visit. Like that's ridiculous, right? Hey, you need surgery. You know, it just didn't seem right. It turns out- Bone surgery, maybe. Heart surgery might be different. Maybe not heart surgery, right? And not your fourth heart surgery, yeah. right? Like, so that's, you know, a big deal. And finally, I had a patient fight me on it to the point where he said, Dr. Bott, I need to be at home where my kids are. I need to be with them because they're the only reason I'm going to do this a fourth time. Hmm. And it dawned on me that I was doing everything from my perspective, right? My perspective was we need to be side by side, but we don't need to be side by side in my office. In fact, for them, what's more important is being home with their family. That's who's most important. That's who their support system is. And so really the kind and respectful thing for me to do was in fact the virtual visit where I let him be where he needed to be. And then I told him what he already knew was coming, but needed to hear. And so it was a real change in perspective for me that virtual visits, telemedicine, letting patients stay in the community where they are, that's a way of respecting them. And it moves away from paternalistic medicine of you come to me, you come to the big center to... I can come to you. There's no reason I can't come to you. And I think, you know, the truth is in a blend of those things. Sometimes, you know, you want to be one place, sometimes you want to be another. But in the beginning, we never had the other. Actually, in the very beginning, we had home visits. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I feel like in Gone with the Wind, the doctor was like coming. Exactly. And and now we're kind of, you know, coming back to some combination of that. But we don't have the cute black bag. I say, you give me a chicken, I give you some medical care. That's right. That's right. I could use some farm fresh eggs in the morning. I think we would like that. <laughs> Yes, any of my patients out there, please bring fresh eggs. That's right. Well, this might be one of the first episodes where I cry. That was pretty touching. Let me just like collect myself here. So was there a moment in those, like clearly at some point you're like, okay, this is working. This has a lot of value. But before that, when you're having the technical challenges, maybe you were having some insecurity or maybe people said stuff to you because we say crazy things as doctors to other doctors and other people, which is still shocking to me sometimes. Did you ever think about just stopping or switching back to just sort of doing a quote normally? I want to say the answer must be yes, but I don't remember a time where I was willing to give up on it. I'm sure there were moments where I was really frustrated and down on it and myself and and maybe down on the system that it wouldn't see what I saw, right? I think that was oftentimes the closest I came to giving up is the system and not speaking to the medical system I worked in. I just mean like the overarching healthcare system wasn't seeing what I was seeing, the need for us to level that playing field between our patients and ourselves. You know, you say you want patients to be motivated, you want them to be empowered, but if you keep stripping their power, putting them in a blue gown, putting them on a table and in an ice cold room, you can't empower people if you keep stripping them of their power. And I think those are probably the times where I was most frustrated and said, well, I just want to stop if there was a time but um, I'm a little stubborn. So I kept on trucking, you know, and I did try to get people to join me. You know, they were, my poor division would just hear, you know, me get up and be like, hey guys, want to do this? And every now and then during a snowstorm in Boston, you know, we got up to seven people at one time out of 134 clinicians. We got up to seven people who were like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And like each one did it maybe once or twice during a snowstorm. And then the Boston Globe would cover it. And I think this is it. We're taking off. And then it would just go back to me. Because spring would come. So speaking of taking off, I have to imagine post-pandemic that things changed significantly for you and your expertise. Can you just like briefly describe some of that? 
I've told you this many times. I'm sorry, you're going to hear it again, but for the sake of the podcast, I like to call it my nobody puts baby in a corner moment. (laughs) So from Dirty Dancing, for those who are younger and may not know the movie, there is a moment where somebody who is not respected for their skills all of a sudden is the person they're looking for. And that happened to so many of us, to yourself and others like you and me who had been really pushing innovation pushing new ways to do things, pushing care at a distance, pushing education at a distance, right? For all of us, when COVID happened, it was a really challenging time for the obvious reasons, but it was the first time that we said care at a distance, education at a distance, healthcare at a distance needs to happen. And it was a real opportunity to shine and to show others what you could do. It was also a real test of the system. Boy, I've never seen computers crash so fast as when you go from seven people using telemedicine to 50,000 visits in a year, right? The systems just, those who could hack it could hack it, and those who broke, broke fast. So it was really an opportunity to also take all the different mechanisms that were out there, the software, the hardware, and get the best ones or iterate on them to make them better really fast. And that had never happened before because there wasn't an interest in the field. So it was great for individuals. My life changed because of it. But I think the investment in infrastructure, the attention to detail, the willingness to iterate on your product, everybody's lives who are in innovation, all of us were forced to get better. Well, I think I'm glad that you had your moment in the spotlight and that everything blew up for you in a good way. But I really think very few people would stick with what you stuck with for so long. You know, you're seeing that it's working, but at the same time, like even in a snowstorm where you cannot like physically go outside to buy a cup of coffee, you have seven people using it, right? It's just like you're banging your head against the wall for years, but you you never gave up. I've said the same thing that you said and, and other people on the show have said the same thing. It's like, I see something so clearly and I'm frustrated that other people do not see it, but that does not deter me from trying to sort of address this thing that I'm seeing. So, I mean, we're really lucky that you didn't stop. And so now you have this explosion of interest and everybody wants to be your friend or get your guidance. And I feel like the culmination of this story and this incredible result is this position at the ACC. Like, can you describe like kind of somehow how that came to be and what you're doing there? So the story, you know, I wish it were an upward trajectory, right? But the story is a bit of a roller coaster. And you know this too. When you start getting good at something, people expect it to be perfect. And it's never perfect. There's always the next challenge. And so in the road from COVID to my current position as chief innovation officer at the ACC, there was, gee, this is great. This is helping us. And then, hey, we're going to go back to the old way it was. We don't really need this. And then, wait, but maybe I would like to use it, but how come it doesn't have the following features? So then you start working on those features, right? And then should it integrate with an electronic health record or should it not? And if you say one camp, the other camp's not happy with you, say the other camp, you know. So I think what one has to recognize is that persistence that we had in the beginning when no one was paying attention. When people start paying attention, it gets even harder. (laughs) Because now people are really looking very closely at what you're doing. Before you were like the person in the corner doing their thing. Nobody got on board. You felt a little sad. Now people are trying to get on board and they're poking holes in everything you do. And you have to humble that ego. You have to decide amongst all the things that are having holes poked in them, what is the priority? What are the ones that need to be addressed to make patient care better, patient experience better, physician and nurse experience better because burnout still needs to be addressed, right? So you need to start to learn to prioritize. 
address things, and then explain why you've chosen to address certain things before others. And so it really gets harder when people start to pay attention and like what you do because you really have to live up to it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I try to tell people this, at least here in the U.S. and the country, there are areas where telemedicine took off and stayed up, or there are practices. There are practices that almost don't do anymore. And all of that is okay. I think the one thing I learned from the past two years in this experience, right, of going from nobody liking something to everybody wanting it to then having judgments about it is there's never a perfect balance. Every place needs to decide for themselves how they're going to do this. What we need to do And this is true moving forward as well, if you look at the use of virtual reality, right? The use of collaborative or analytical intelligence, right? When we're implementing these things, there will be some places where it's very useful. And within the same practice, there'll be some places where it's just not going to work. And that could be a people issue. That could be a diagnosis issue. That could be an access issue. And you have to be okay with that fluctuation. It can't be all or nothing. And I think that's the lesson I learned. And I think that's the lesson that led me to chief innovation officer, which is I wanted an opportunity, and I'm so grateful to have been given this opportunity, to look globally, to look nationally, and say, what are all the different ways healthcare is delivered? And how does the digital transformation of healthcare, of cardiology, happen given different sets of circumstances? Different types of patients, different abilities, different cultures. And you know this from your business, it's different each time, but that's the challenge right? That's the challenge is figuring out. And then even better challenge is, can I bucket this into five basic different ways? Nobody loves that, but you have to do that from a business model and from a healthcare delivery model. There's probably five different ways you can do X, whatever X is. And then can we figure out which programs are similar to each other, which concepts are similar, and then connect those people. So you and I talking probably wouldn't have happened 10 years ago, right? So the orthopedic doctor and the cardiologist, maybe I would do some like screen your patient and you'd say, give me cardiac clearance. And I would say, I don't clear anyone, but this one doesn't (laughs) seem to have cardiac contraindications, right? So that would be the extent of our, our relationship. But now you really see people crossing silos, whether it's interdisciplinary, whether it's industry to academia, to government, to VC, to small startup, you see us all crossing those boundaries, coming together, recognizing that we can do it better if we do it together. And I think, therefore, moving forward in this position, the best part of this job is that opportunity to collaborate across silos. And I think it's what all of us who have hung on for so long by ourselves in our corner really are lucky to have now, which is like-minded people who are going to help you keep pushing and you're no longer have to do that alone. And so I'm hopeful that the ACC and and SCIO there, that that's something that we can continue to do is thought leadership about what the future can and should look like, listening to what people need on the ground, patients and clinicians, talking to people who are responsible for infrastructure, who are responsible for how we're going to make this happen, and then crossing silos because the things that you want to achieve in orthopedics and the things we want to achieve in cardiology, boy, aren't they similar. Well, I think, I mean, calling back to an earlier point, part of it is desperation, right? I mean, healthcare has never been more difficult than it has been today. And I think we're getting desperate when we're like burnt out on top of burnt out. And I think people are willing to try new things and cross borders because I think it's almost like a cry for help in a way that some of this is coming from. And I think things are getting better. And like a lot of the things you described is sort of dynamics I've been noticing for a long time where there's a 
one of our engineers was talking about something they called the shed problem, where, you know, if you're building a shed, you have plumbing and electricity and like the wood you're using and like nobody cares about any of these things. But suddenly when you're talking about what color the shed should be, everybody has an opinion because <laughs> people understand that and they can see that. I love this. And so I'm sure there are many elements to telemedicine, the technology that you've been helping develop, that people have no idea what's going on and they don't care. Yep. But there are elements that they see and affects them and they have like a zillion opinions, right? And it's it's just interesting where we focus our energies. And then the other challenge I see is that these people are not trained in technology or product management. They don't understand prioritization. And, and there's also no system for like, how do these decisions even get made? And so I think the next step here is what you've really effectively done is delegating, being like, hey, there are experts in our profession that understand this stuff, and we should let them practice their sort of subspecialty of technology and medicine. You've done that. And it's like, we need more of that because we we need to trust each other. Just like, you know, if you had a patient with supracondylar humerus fracture, you'd send it to me and I'd say what I think you should do. And you'd probably just do it. And similarly, if I have no idea what the heart is or what it does, I would ask you and then you would do it. And we trust each other for these things because we've trained for a lifetime to do it. But technology has not had that kind of respect or appreciation yet of understanding that just because we live with it every day and it's in our phones doesn't mean that you understand it. We need specialists like you to sort of help make decisions for us and, and gather stakeholder feedback and prioritize, just like you were so nicely describing. So this is a position that, you know, I hope to see more of across specialties, but I'm so excited about it, if you can't tell, and congratulations. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying it wholeheartedly. Super complex. Is that above the elbow fracture? Am I getting the area right? I'm trying to, <laughs> like, my, my, all I'm, my little Yomed brain is like, come on, you can do this. Think of your anatomy. <laughs> thank you. It makes me feel special. Uh, but distal humerus fracture, if anyone's interested. Distal humerus. Okay. There, see, I was right, right above the elbow. Yeah, okay. oh, no, no. Yeah, so, it's, it's, it's not hard. This is just bones. It's interesting. I, I love the way you said that, though, right? Which is, as we're moving forward now, we need two things. One is we need more people like yourself and others too who say, I have the clinical expertise, but I'm also willing to become the technological expert, right? The data expert, the business expert. I'm, I'm willing to, to learn all of that. And then for all those who are not you, we need them to be technologically enabled, innovation enabled. I'm working a lot in what I like to call collaborative intelligence instead of artificial intelligence, because the word artifice means deceit, and I feel like no one's going to trust me. So, But as we work in machine learning or collaborative intelligence, right, we need people who are AI-enabled, people who get why we're doing things in a technological way, even if they maybe can't lead themselves. So we need the leaders to come from clinical medicine, like yourself and others. And then we need everybody else, and we need to teach them. It falls on us to get them excited, to teach them, to help them understand why a lot of the things that we're doing make sense for the patient, make sense for the system, and in fact, make things better. I think you've been doing that, and you've been doing an incredible job. So I'm so excited about what you've accomplished and what's to come. So we're coming to the end of our show, and it is tradition on the slice to ask our guests, one, what their favorite type of pizza is and where their favorite pizza is. I am med peds, which means I have trouble choosing. <laughs> so may I offer two, the pediatric and then the adult version of what I love? Is that okay? There are no rules here. Okay. When I was younger, I grew up in Jersey, and uh, there were a lot of pizza huts around, and I'm uh, Indian by origin. And so spicy food's a thing. And so the Pizza Hut pizza with the jalapeno peppers on it growing up 
anywhere in Jersey, just a go-to. And so that's a, it's a really like fond memory. But then I went to Yale, as we discussed, for med school. And there's a restaurant called Bar in New Haven. Mm. And Bar was the first time that anybody put mashed potatoes on a pizza for me. And I fell in love. So if anybody is visiting the town of New Haven, Bar is still there. They make the best mashed potato pizza you will ever have. Strongly recommend you go get that. Incredibly delicious. I think if anyone listens to every episode of this podcast, they're just going to straight up move to New Haven. <laughs> has there been a lot every of people from New Haven so far? New Haven. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope they sponsor us at the city of New Haven. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for the work that you do for the world and all of your patients and for being a great friend. It's a small world of health tech innovators. And I learned so much from having known you over the past few years and seeing all of your success really just keeps me going on those days, like you say, where you see something and you're just going to keep going no matter what's happening around you. Oh, that's so true. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm so glad that you have the slice going on because I think I'm going to be listening to this podcast as soon as it comes out. Well, download it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bot. Thank you for being on The Slice. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, that was a very inspiring conversation with Dr. Ami Bot. And in particular, what I took away there was her personal story of how she's been a lifelong innovator and trailblazer, whether it's adult congenital heart disease, telemedicine, or now innovation in cardiology as a whole and creating an entirely new position. But that didn't come from nowhere. And, you know, her sort of personal journey, especially how her parents influenced her, I found really touching. And are the stories we're trying to tell here at The Slice where these things are not easy, but they're really worth it. And often there's a lot going on behind the scenes, which hopefully can be a takeaway to our listeners of how they can get the strength and the grit to pursue their own journeys to try and make positive change in healthcare. So, so excited we got to have her on the show. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to know about the latest episodes, updates, and resources in the world of medtech, make sure to follow The Slice anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Follow OsoVR on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit us at our website at osovr.com. Special thanks to our producers, Rachel Roberts, Sterling Shore, and Shauna Davis. I'm your host, Justin Broad, and we'll see you next time on The Slice. <laughs>